welcome to this uh, live webinar uh, from the Living and Working Abroad show. Thanks a lot for joining us this week and I hope you find it interesting and of value. We're on uh, Twitter stream as well so you can look at us uh, there at that, that space to find out more about what we're talking about today on, on the Living and Working Abroad show. Uh, product cover uh, services for expats living and working abroad, relocating overseas and investing offshore. Uh, whether that's in property, in business or financial investments, there's ways to save tax and save money so you're not paying more than you want to. But when you're uh, an expat living and working abroad, the considerations you have to think about are what is the uh, political, uh, economic uh, stability of the place where you work, um, what are the tax implications uh, and how do you maintain your, your tax uh, records when you're working cross-board and on distance, what are the complications with having bank accounts and, and settling those matters when, when people uh, die. And all those issues have added levels of complication and requirements not just because you're dealing with different legal systems and different countries, uh, but also with international standards and, and uh, uh, for trusts and, and uh, taxes, common reporting standards, exchange of information, um, which has been extended to transaction uh, uh, records being maintained, as well as beneficiaries of businesses and, and trusts and properties. Um, as people that are trying to Airbnb overseas property rentals are finding out this year. So there's a world of services that Parac can offer an expat living and working abroad. Uh, contact us for, for more information at our website at paracpartnership.com. But having said all that, uh, and you can join in with the conversation on the Twitter uh, space or or live on our YouTube channel. We will get back to you. Uh, we At the Living and Working Broad Show, we cover specific issues. So hopefully you find this interesting value. If you've got a comment to make during the, the, the um, presentation, we'll answer that live um, and, and see where we can get to to answer your questions. Um, the first issue that we're looking at uh, this this week is uh, a world of change. Um, as you can see, I sometimes wear glasses, but in this particular presentation, I'm trying to not wear glasses, not for vanity reasons, but just uh, for, for lighting reasons. Uh, and so uh, I couldn't pick up my headline. So uh, the first topic we're going to discuss today is a world of change. Um, it's a global balance, and we've talked recently how uh, China's situation has been changing around the world, and what's the impact of that on the world around us. We've got the Country Garden and Evergrande, uh, mega Chinese property companies with lots of debt from around the world, invested in property which they've not been able to sell. They've got, uh, they've got ghost cities in, in China capital sitting there with, with uh, a deflationary environment, uh, depreasing rents, no capital coming in to repay and service those debts. So that, that is causing issues and stresses. And they, they managed, we said last week, 
uh, watch again at, at, on our YouTube channel uh, to, to defer the debts on those businesses, but those will become due at some point. And how is that going to be managed? And, and how are China going to manage that politically in a global economy if they want to isolate themselves? What we've seen very clearly is that with China, they had a revolution in the late 40s uh, and, and Taiwan is not a, a completely independent sovereign state. Um, and it's claimed to be part of China territory, uh, but the uh, the opposition in the uh, Revolutionary War uh, it, it took up control uh, and and created their own economy in Thailand. Um, if you were cynic, you would say that China and Russia did a deal that after China quickly took over Ukraine and reclaimed those lands for Russia. That, that Russia would then support China to take over Taiwan, making belligerent noises about that, which is now having a bit of a consequence in terms of world trade. And we see that the USA, with their economic and financial power, are now uh, disengaging from China and, and, and creating new working environments. So there's a new uh, uh, Vietnam uh, a USA uh, trade agreement been signed this week to up the amount of uh, tech, the microchip uh, manufacturing that can go on in, in, in Vietnam. India is already replacing uh, China as the major source of spare parts for Apple uh, um, uh, iPhones and, and computers, uh, <clears throat> which is taking business and trade and wealth and income away from China in the short term, uh, co contributing to their recession, uh, which will could have a, a spiraling effect on their economy as they become uh, a, a maturing economy uh, rather than a tiger economy that, that's growing rapidly. Uh, for the new uh, economies in Asia, which are getting uh, this inward investment in, in India, in Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, and countries all along Southeast Asia, big opportunity uh, for places to develop and for expats to support that, that growth and for businesses to engage with those economies. So there's big moves that are being made there and it'll be interesting to see how that develops. If, if the UK-India trade deal comes off, how that can uh, take us forward. China. Uh, is not the biggest population in the world. That's now technically India. Uh, and with the education and the language and the, and the history of India, it, it's set to become a, a prominent economy in the um, next phase of the 21st century in which we're living. Uh, so it's a world of constant change. Uh, expats need to look for new opportunities. You see the Middle East is a growing dynamic uh, uh, environment where they're looking for economic and tourism uh, investments to replace the oil for the future. So the world of change, anticipate that and grow into it. And for more help and guidance on uh, living and working abroad, investing offshore, contact us at approachpartnership.com. The next topic to discuss today for UK expats living and working abroad is that HMRC rules. 
HMRC have got rules. Every tax uh, authority has rules, and it's about obeying the rules to pay the, the right and the fair amount of tax. Not too much, but not too little. So expats living working abroad from the UK can enjoy big tax breaks. So you can pay up to 45% income tax, social insurance taxes, and other taxes in the UK. When you go and live and work abroad, you can <coughs> pay less tax. But even in the UAE, you might be paying some tax now. These taxes uh, are there. And it's about having one tax residence where you declare your worldwide income under a double taxation treaty so you're not paying tax in, in your home country. A British expat living working abroad, if they're not living in a country with a double taxation treaty with the UK, but full liability back in the UK. Now, if you get a rebate or if you get an assessment from the uh, revenue and it's wrong, um, spookily enough, that might seem like good news when you put that money in the bank, but it could have consequences for you down the line. And, and this is the thing to consider. We follow the rules and we make the right tax declaration. If HMRC make a mistake, um, they could make a mistake in assessment and they could send, rebate you too much money. If the HMRC uh, makes a rebate to an expat that goes to live and work abroad or, or, or registers their pension overseas, so uh, it, when you've got a pension from the UK, you can register it to pay tax in your country of residence, be that France, Cyprus, uh, Portugal, or elsewhere under the double taxation treaty, potentially pay less tax on your pension in that country than, than you would in the UK. But if you get a rebate from that process and, and the HMRC are wrong uh, in that rebate and they paid you too much, then potentially you've got another liability uh, and, and penalties to pay on the amount of tax that the HMRC rebated to you. Now, recently, in a, a court tribunal case, somebody appealed against this kind of instance where they've been given a, a rebate uh, by uh, HMRC, the page you earn in the UK. So it's entirely uh, HMRC's error in, in working out they should do a rebate and paying that rebate to to uh, an individual. Um, and when they spotted it a few years later, not only did they charge you the tax back, but they charged you penalties and interest on the tax that they'd rebated her uh, and she understood it was hers in good faith based upon the HMRC advice. Um, and this got all the way the, uh, the, the uh, taxpayer appealed. HMRC rejected the appeal. And it got all the way up to the court tribunal uh, to say these penalties and interest are not fair because the HMRC paid the rebate uh, and, and didn't ask for the tax. But the court tribunal ruled that actually HMRC rules apply. So when there's interest and penalties to be applied, it is for the HMRC to apply them. And the court could not overturn the uh, uh, application of a penalty, an interest charge by HMRC, uh, whether it's their mistake or whether it's your mistake. Now, if it's your mistake, you know, you pay the price, you pay the penalty. But if HMRC are making mistakes and you take those on board in good faith, 
um, they still apply the same rules for penalty and interest. Now, they could, at their discretion, give an exemption, uh, but those of you who have dealt with um, HMRC in the last couple of years, and that's not that many because you don't really get anything done through the HMRC, a very, very slow administration process, um, that, that, that you, you'll find that you, you can get caught up in a system and those penalties and late late payment penalties will come back to haunt you. So the, the best thing to do is to make sure that your tax returns are submitted, they're correct, and, and they follow the rules, and that the returns are done on time to avoid those penalties uh, and, and charges. Um, the HMRC rules are theirs to apply, and, and they can't be overturned. So the best thing to do, if you've got a, an issue as an expat with HMRC, uh, contact us at productpartnership.com and we'll help you and advise and guide you on how you can minimise any liabilities and, and, and make an appeal to try and get a discretion reduction in any charges that they're making, but otherwise uh, confirm you're paying the right amount of tax and avoid those penalty and late interest charges. More information, guys, on helping with UK tax registration returns, contact us at productpartnership.com. Just checking my notes. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, thanks a lot for listening today. And um, the, the next on our Living and Working Abroad show is looking at pension savings. UK expats uh, living and working abroad um, aren't necessarily paying national insurance in the UK. One thing that the national insurance in the UK does is it contributes towards a UK state pension. Not all countries offer a, a state pension and you may not choose deliberately not to have one. But if you're living and working in the UK, any type of job where you're paying national insurance, that will contribute towards a state pension. If you contributed for 35 years, then that gives you the, the full UK state pension. Now, currently, that's £203, and it, it, it's triple locked for um, a, a price rise each year. That price rise, could, uh, that increase in the state pension could be 2.5%, or it could be equivalent to the September uh, inflation or, or salary rises, real wage rises, index rises in the UK. So even though you're an expat, if you've got a UK state pension, uh, then that is still indexed by wage inflation in the UK or price inflation or 2.5% as a minimum increase. So what we've got now in the UK is a situation where 8.5% uh, wage inflation over the last year means that potentially um, the UK state pension can have another jump next April, the current level of uh, £203 a week to £220 a week, which is about 11500 a year. So the UK state pension is getting close to the position where it's going to be the equivalent of the personal allowance. The personal allowance is fixed at 12570 and it's fixed at that for the next few years. So it's not going to increase. Uh, and so within... Uh, under the current regime. So if the current uh, 
fiscal rules are applied by the UK government over the next four or five years with wage inflation or indexing of those state pensions, it's going to be equivalent to the personal allowance. So uh, 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 a, a UK expat can still get the equivalent of the personal allowance tax-free income from the UK uh, when they retire if you've got the 35 years contribution. Um, can an expat uh, provide for UK state pensions? Yes, you can. Is it worth it? Well, think about it. <clears throat> There's two ways of paying for a UK state pension. One is to pay uh, as a, a sole trader where you're paying around 350 um, a, a week. And the other one is, is a voluntary contribution where you're paying about 1750 a week. So that's the difference between 184 a year and 900 a year. And, and that gives you, um, each year's contribution gives you 300 uh, pounds extra state pension a year. So if, you, if an expat overseas makes a voluntary contribution of 900 pounds, they will get, once they get to UK state retirement age, uh, they will get their money back within three years within three years. So uh, three years of retirement from age 66. So anybody retiring in the UK's state pension is 66 or onwards will potentially get um, their the money back from their voluntary contribution, 900 pounds a year, uh, 1750 a week um, within three years. So that could be quite an attractive investment um, possibly it's it's a fixed investment, it's a cautious investment, but it, it, it's still there. Uh, if you're a contractor and you're in business, it's a tax deductible expense, um, or it's paid by an employee, employee. So even if you're working abroad, you could still be maintaining your national insurance contributions. When you're working on a short contract abroad, you could do class two contributions. It's only 184. National insurance contributions well, as an expat, you don't get any other benefits in the UK well, uh, uh, from that other than contributing towards the state pension. But that alone is worth it in itself. Now, can the UK government in the long term continue to afford that? Who knows? Um, and, and will it get capped at some point uh, as an as a amount of total revenue, uh, increase the state pension age, uh, cap the, the, the thing? They could easily say well the state pension will be equivalent to the personal allowance and that's the way they could manage it going forward and end the triple lock system so there's lots of different things that could happen however for 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 a, a, an expat living working abroad if you're working abroad for four or five years it's still worth you contributing into that uk system because if you're you're relocating abroad when you're 30 you could already have uh, up to 14 years contributions into the UK. So it, it brings you that extra pension. And, and don't forget, expats, that there's this big change in state pensions um, under the Gordon Brown era. Um, and so if you are short, you didn't contribute between 2006 and 16, you can add those extra 10 years in as a lump sum. You have to do it as a voluntary contribution. That's £900 a year equivalent. But, but that uh, each year, like I say, would, would, would increase you uh, annual pension by 300 a year. So that would give you an extra £3,000 pension a year 
if you made those extra contributions. So it could be deemed to be worthwhile for, for someone who hasn't any other form of, of income. And if you're in the UK, um, it could be just, you know, your UK taxable income. So uh, it's well worth considering pension savings, making the best of your contribution level uh, to, to pay as you go where you're living and working abroad on a short-term contract or longer term and to catch up. And for more information and guidance on that, uh, contact us at productpartnership.com. We're on uh, Twitter space. You can chat to us there and listen there. And you can listen again uh, at Twitter space. Go to Product Sam Says. Or you can uh, watch back our, our YouTube channel for Living Working Abroad show. Our next topic, I'd like to talk about bankers. What do you think of bankers? You'd think they're there to provide a service, but under uh, modern day rules and international tax rules, um, um, uh, with common reporting standards, exchange of information initiated from the OECD um, back in 2014, uh, there's a progressive tightening of, of constraints uh, to make sure that uh, there's no terrorism, there's no money laundering from criminals um, uh, or, or despot uh, political leaders around the world. Um, but these rules that they apply um, for the really evil things that go on in this world uh, affect most of all the, the, the ordinary working person uh, uh, around the world. And for expats, the particular challenge now is with banks they need a license. And because the rules have changed, um, there's a lot of compliance and extra compliance for a bank to have to uh, provide services for somebody that's cross-border. Uh, then banks are pulling back and reorganizing themselves. So it may be the HSBC bank, but it's not the same as it was before. Uh, HSBC have to have individual banks with individual licenses to cover individual needs. Some banks can offer a, a wider international service, but they have to go to a higher level of scrutiny and checking. And this can lead to anybody who's called a politician being interpreted as somebody that they can't offer a bank account to. Or it could be, uh, uh, it, you could have a situation where you're working abroad, but they don't know where your money is coming from, so they can't take your, your, your money from you or they can't understand your address because your, your utility bills in a foreign language. All Greek to me. Anyway, so the common reporting standards started out as, uh, as exchange of information, and those rules are, are applied and, and restricting people. And you now have to update with your bank every couple of years to show that you're alive and where you're living and where you are a tax resident. So they've got your tax number, they've got your uh, address uh, and the name, and th they then exchange that with all the countries where, where you are, have got an interest. So you've got an investment in America, sh in American shares, and your tax resident in the UK, they're exchanging that information into the UK. Um, but if you're, you're an expat um, that, that's uh, living in the UAE, um, and not paying any tax there, 
Um, <clears throat> but you've got a property back in the UK to exchange any information back into the UK. You're a UK citizen, they exchange, exchange information back into the UK. Because don't forget, you're, you're, dom you're, you're domiciled to the tax country in which you're a citizen. Unless you change your domicile, that is your default tax uh, uh, environment. So uh, the UK, for UK expats, has always got a right to tax you unless you're in a, uh, um, another country as a tax resident under a double taxation uh, agreement. So uh, you've got your shares in America, uh, British citizen, exchange information to the UK. You're working in the UAE, exchange information back into uh, the UK. And, and America and the UK and UAE can all see that information. It's all shared because there's a common reporting standard of that information uh, around all the different companies. Um, but now when you have a, a company uh, or uh, with shareholders, or if you create a family trust or a business trust, um, you, you also have to validate the transactions within that arrangement. So when you're moving your money as an individual, um, if you want to move money, 50,000 into the UK to, to buy a property or make an investment, you have to prove your source of funds, uh, and, and, uh, which, which is one thing. So when you get to the next level up and you're scaling up and you've got a, a business or a, a family trust or family business that's moving money around, you have to have a transaction record for those movements. Um, so uh, if you put a property into trust, you, you have to record that on a register with the regulators in the country where that transaction is happening. Um, and same with the, uh, financial investments, property uh, um, and, and banking movements. So all these transactions will need to be uh, registered um, and, and uh, that, that registration makes them tradable, uh, traceable at some point if uh, the taxman's rules, uh, they felt they were ever broken and wanted to do an investigation. Uh, this is why we, it's important that we internationally follow the rules uh, and make the right applications in the right place. Uh, coming in is increased scrutiny on um, transfer pricing so that if there's common ownership between companies, they tighten up on the transfer pricing rules, which which means that you you may not be able to get away with across um, a holding company uh, taxing the money out, uh, invoicing the money out of another company into a lower tax jurisdiction. So there's restrictions on that as well, uh, plus the the sort of minimum corporation tax rate standard, which has been set at fifteen percent for the world, gradually being introduced. Uh, which is why we're seeing some countries which previously weren't charging expat taxes now introducing some. Um, so it's a world of change uh, led by the bankers, but the bankers, to be fair, are led by the regulators uh, on international tax and the OECD. Uh, so for more information and guidance and, and to certify and maintain the integrity of your, your overseas property investment and trusts, contact us at projectpartnership.com. Our final topic for today is um, 
to discuss that death is hard on a family. Put aside the fact that somebody's dead and you've lost a loved one, we know that's hard. Um, but death is also hard for many other reasons. We just discussed there um, in our last topic on bankers, um, how the common reporting standards require certification of, of every, everything that moves. So everything is recorded now. And, and it's the same on an estate. So if somebody dies and they own property, they own uh, vehicles, they own uh, shares and business and investments, uh, each of those has to be verified. Now, the way that that's done is, is you have to have a court-appointed um, uh, uh, administrator of the estate that makes sure all the debts and all the taxes of the deceased uh, are paid uh, appropriately before the the assets are then distributed to the family. Now, in the UK, uh, that could mean a 40% inheritance tax. And, you know, with the UK collecting um, an ever-increasing billions of, of pounds every month in inheritance tax uh, from, from estates, and in the UK, inheritance tax has to be settled within six months of, of death. So that might mean that uh, either the beneficiaries have to fork up the cash or they have to force sell the property or the business or take a loan to pay the inheritance taxes technically due within six months of death. Um, given that it takes an average of nine months to settle a probate in the UK, um, that, that's quite good, good uh, timing for a HMRC rule. The, the complications, though, can, can go beyond that. So when you cross border, um, different rules can be applied. So when, within the EU, for example, uh, you can do a, a settlement of an estate, um, but you have to do your worldwide settlement from the country in which you die. So if you're French living in Cyprus, you still have to settle your estate in Cyprus. Um, now, you might still be uh, bound by Cyprus rules of, 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 of dying, about who can benefit and who can be, pay taxes. But that doesn't mean that you're free of your French or your Spanish or your or British obligations uh, as a citizen of that country as well. Um, so you've got different legal your restrictions with different uh, requirements when people die about how wills are written and who can benefit. So in some countries, you've got forced heirship where the estate must go to children in proportion. Uh, other countries, uh, it can be uh, allocated by wills, uh, but some people can be excluded and some people can't be. Some people can benefit only to, to a degree. Um, in, in England, you have trust law and English law, which is applied in other countries, largely Commonwealth countries but it, you can't use trust law in somewhere like France. So th th these are the issues that, that come up for people on, on a regular basis. Most importantly, if you've got a fixed asset in one country, you can't settle it from an estate in another country. So if you're living and working in Cyprus and, and you die, as a European country, 
you have to settle your worldwide estate under Cyprus law. But then, once you've got that, if you've got a fixed asset of American shares or UK property or Isle of Man investment or Irish pension, you then have to have a separate administration for each of those jurisdictions to settle that estate. Now, that could be an administrative thing. It could be a resealing of the existing administration authority, but it's still a legal process. It's still a court process. It still potentially involves having to have people in that location. So if it can't be done administratively by post, uh, that somebody has to turn up, then potentially you've got legal uh, and agent fees in each country in which you've got assets. And, and when you're doing that, you have to have registered, legalized people to do that work in each country. And in which case, because the, the family's not represented, because the family's living abroad, it's going to increase the cost of the estate and the probate administration and the time uh, exponentially. Uh, because uh, to, to settle one estate, uh, to, to get the grant of probate, is going to take uh, three to six months anyway, and more likely nine to 12. Okay, that's the first instance. You then have to reseal it in each country before you can free the assets, pay the debts, uh, and distribute the estate to the, to the children. How do pro, what, what's Proact's view of that? Well, we say protect the family uh, down the generations. Uh, and uh, English law allows for trusts, which can be used in uh, USA, the Commonwealth. Uh, Ireland, UK, Cyprus, and, and other countries around the world. Uh, they can be based there, even if the assets are maybe somewhere else, and they could be the legal owner, the tax owner uh, of the shares, of the property, of the investments. And if the trust owns the investments, and if the trust owns the property, and if the trust owns the business shares, then in the event of death, there's no probate administration required to transfer those assets to a beneficiary. Save your probate costs, no time, no hassle, no bother. You do have to pay to set up and run the trust now. So it's like running a family business through the trust um, without the taxes, if you're using a Cyprus International Trust for your family gifts. What is more, if you've got an inheritance tax liability uh, on your estate, potentially by gifting the assets into a family trust, you can avoid that inheritance tax. So if you put a million pound property uh, from the UK into a family trust, it's potentially exempt from inheritance tax in seven years. There's no probate, so there's no reporting anyway. Uh, you have to follow the rules, common reporting standards, everything's exchange information, the transactions are each recorded, everything goes by the book. We follow the HMRC rules, we follow the rules of all the countries, but it's still a way uh, for you to pay now uh, to administer your affairs and have your arrangements in place to avoid the complication of dealing with your estate when you die.
And that is why at ProAct, we recognize that death in the family is difficult. So manage it today. Don't leave your widow. Don't leave your children in another country with a problem to deal with because you didn't organize your affairs properly uh, while you're alive using your money, financial resources, instead of uh, uh, paying tax and legal fees to do that administration uh, over two or three years uh, after you die. Let your family celebrate your life uh, and mourn your death uh, and not bitterly regret the amount of hassle and grief they're, they're put to because of the, the constraints of bankers, of regulators, and the legal systems around the world. For more information and guidance on family trusts and protecting the family against the cost and delay of probate and inheritance taxes, contact us at probatepartnership.com. I have to put my glasses on to see if I've got any questions that have come up today. So I've got no live questions at the moment. So thanks a lot for that uh, for today. Um, Next time on the Living and Working Broad Show, we'll be covering some other topical subjects uh, as we're going to the autumn to look at uh, what uh, an expat can do to protect their, their family and business living and working abroad. Uh, contact us at our website, productpartnership.com. Uh, you can watch this again on YouTube, watch for our short versions of the little bits of information uh, or on the Twitter space. And don't forget to share with your family and friends and spread the word uh, so we can help more people, uh, expats around the world. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.